Well, last week from this perch, uh, I tried to impress upon you the historical significance of the prophet Isaiah's life and ministry, uh, which I boiled down to three items. We'll go over them real quick. Um, first, in, in very significant ways, uh, the prophecies of Isaiah dating seven centuries before the birth of Christ, you know, about roughly seven centuries before Jesus was born, he, he his prophecies provide the theological and prophetic uh, foundation for this little something that came along later called the New Testament. You know, this Isaiah is the foundation stone for that. He's the, you know, he's, he provides the, uh, you know, the background, the pr- prophetic foundation, theological foundation. Uh, last week, now we could have done this last week, and I won't do it today either, but we really could have gone into the New Testament writings beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how, how Isaiah contributes to the arguments of Peter and, you know, and, and, and the letters of Pauline letters, you know, how, how uh, Isaiah crops up again and again and again and again in the letters. But we, instead of that, we concentrated on really Isaiah's more striking impact on the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, and especially Matthew, especially Matthew. Uh, the, and Matthew, of course, the most Jewish gospel in terms of interpret, in terms of uh, orientation. You know that Matthew more than the others, as the, this happened that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. You know it links the the the, the life of Christ to the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecies, and there really could not be. There could not be a gospel according to Matthew as we have it without, if you will, the, the gospel according to Isaiah, you know, the, 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 you know, written 700 years before. Matthew's argument is that Jesus was and is the Messiah because he was, he was exactly who the prophet said he was. He's, he did exactly what the prophet said he would do. And more often than not, that the prophet Matthew cites is Matthew. You know, I was thinking, what would Matthew look like if you tried to redact? You know, there's a word we hear. If you'd redacted Isaiah, you're trying to protect Isaiah as a source, you know. It'd be a lot of black. It'd be a lot of magic marker through, you know, through, the, through Matthew if you tried to hide Isaiah's identity there. So my point was that, oh, if Isaiah was interested, and you know he was, if Isaiah was interested in living a life that counted in the things of God, you know, that, that counted for the cause of God in his, you know, in his life, he wanted, it to, he wanted to make a mark, he wanted to leave a dent, you know, he... he he wanted to have an influence. This foundational structural connection to the New Testament was a home run. It was a, a you know, wow, way to go, Isaiah. What a, what a thing. And along those lines, I argued also that Isaiah... Also, beyond that, beyond just being the foundation of the New Testament, and particularly of the Gospels, and particularly of Matthew, 
and is really the connection. He's the, he's the connecting tissue between the Old Testament and the New. Besides that, Isaiah, the person Isaiah in his prophecies, actually, and this is what I argued, actually shaped Jesus of Nazareth's perception of himself. Now, we went into the argument last week. It's hard for us to think about, you know, but I, you know, I said, if you, you have to, um, you have to come to this, unless the baby Jesus was faking it in the manger, you know, he's pretending not to understand and have to learn things like a normal, you know, human being would have to learn, unless he's faking it, which he's not. He, at some point, he comes to realize who he is and what he's to do. And, the, and we can speculate about how that happened, and we have to speculate because a lot were in the dark about it. How did he win? How? We know something important. When he's 12 years old in the temple, that was a big deal. We know he had some, you know, he's, uh, he, he certainly grasped that he's God's unique child in, in some way, right? And then by the baptism, by the time of the baptism, he's all in. He understands fully who he is and what he's to be about. But how did he get you know, beyond that, how did he get there? And the the evidence that we have is that he's shaped in his own thinking about who he is, what he's to do, is shaped by the prophet Isaiah. And all over again, well, I won't re-argue it. We looked at, you can listen to it from last week, but but he again and again refers to Isaiah and says, this is who I am. He preaches that sermon at his hometown synagogue where he says, I'm, he basically says, Isaiah 61, I'm the me there. I am the one. I'm the anointed one. I'm the expected one. I'm the one who is to come. And later he, he shores up um, the baptizer, the baptizer's faith is going wobbly, right? His expectations aren't being met. The baptizer's in jail. He didn't expect to be in jail. He thought the kingdom was coming, and you know, like right then, and where, where's the kingdom? I didn't expect to be in jail. And so he sends word to Jesus, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And what is Messiah's answer? His, his answer is to quote Isaiah in saying, the blind are receiving this, are the blind receiving their sight, John? Are the lame walking? The poor had the good news preached to them? He said, in other words, tell John, I'm doing the things that Isaiah said Messiah would do. There's your answer. And so if providing a foundation for the Gospels and the New Testament is a great service to the Lord. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? If, if that's a great contribution to the service of the Lord, how about shaping, contributing to, filling out the very self-conception of Messiah himself? I mean, I can imagine. I can imagine Jesus. Now, this is very speculative, but I can imagine Jesus telling Isaiah, you know, you were influential with me, maybe more than any of the prophets. So I was re reading you made help, helped me 
understand what I, who I am, what I was to do, and how to, how to embark on this mission, my calling. And, and thirdly, I argued for Isaiah's historical impact through the apologetic and evangelistic power of one particular chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And, you know, by apologetic power, I mean uh, defense of the gospel, convincing people, evangelistic, I mean persuasive, you know, they actually bring people to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, one, one of the things I, I want to do in the adult Sunday school class sometime, uh, you know, sometime relatively soon, um, and I've been working on notes in my convalescence, you know, kind of, I've been working on it. But one of the things I'd like to do is a, is a class, just one, cla- one uh, hour, you know, one, one time, on Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53, uh, which I've wondered about for many years, because, once again, we did this last week, but as Isaiah 53 is so obviously so transparently about Jesus. I mean, it's about Jesus. And you, and you read it and you say, well, that's Jesus. His, you know, he was, his grave is a sign with wicked men. And there's a thief here and a thief there. A rich man in his death. Rich man asks for the body of Jesus. He stands silent before his accusers. He doesn't open his mouth. You know, all of it. You, you read it and you think, well, that's... But, of course, it's written 700 years before Jesus was born, however... And I've wondered, you know, what are the what do Jewish Bible te- we don't know, or what, what are their scholars? What do they do with that? What do they do with that? And so I want to do a class on, you know, what what did they do with it? What do they do with it? And I was surprised to learn recently that there is no extant, which means existing somewhere. There's not in a museum or anywhere. There is no existing. Jewish commentary at all on Isaiah 53 before the Christian era. I don't, I don't know if there is, you know, maybe there's not much of anything before the Christian era. I don't know, but it surprised me. But I think it's making me think, was that a neglected passage? Was that a neglected passage, Isaiah 53? Was it, uh, you know, maybe when you, and when you read the Gospels, Maybe they're more concerned about whether it's allowable to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath or, you know, or whether, whether it's allowable to carry a medicinal wad in your ear if you have an earache on the Sabbath. You know, they had opinions about that and wrote, you know, wrote papers on it, you know, had position papers on that. Maybe that's the kind of stuff they were into and they couldn't be bothered with it. But with the events of the Passion Week, you know, Jesus' arrest, his uh, trials, his crucifixion, when that happened, like I said, his crucifixion with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death, silence before his accusers. Uh, his literally, as Isaiah says, in Isaiah 53, being pierced through for our transgressions, the nails, the, the spear. When, when all of that happened, the Christians immediately discovered Isaiah 53, immediately, as the granddaddy of all Old Testament passages, uh, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And that, that chapter 
had a tremendous apologetic and evangelistic appeal or a usefulness. And in Isaiah 53, it kind of, you know, it, it, it's like the Jewish John 3.16. The go-to passage. We saw it last week, you know, Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, the, the court official who, you know, who Philip was sent to by, by the Spirit. And, and he's reading Isaiah 53. He said, who's he, who's he talking about? Who is this suffering servant? Is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? And, and, and Philip, beginning with that passage, explained Jesus to, you know, explain how Jesus is the Messiah. So I want to say, all right, Isaiah, you laid the foundation for the New Testament. You, you, you are the absolutely necessary connective tissue between the Old Testament and the New. Matthew, Matthew more so, the Gospels a little less, you know, but the whole, the whole New Testament too. You shape Messiah's conception of himself. Jesus gets a lot of his ideas about who he is and what he's to do from Isaiah. And you, uh, you provide, you, your pen produces this, this tremendous apologetic and evangelistic passage, Isaiah 53, which is like the, the home run. It's just the dead cinch. You know, you read it and you think this is, Jesus is the Messiah. And I want to say, wow, 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 what, what a contribution, right, of this man Isaiah. Well, here's where, I, that's where I want to pick it up. Because today I want to call your attention, or maybe your remembrance, to how these great historical accomplishments contrast with Isaiah's own personal experience in his life. Let's start with Isaiah's dramatic call to prophetic ministry, his call to ministry, recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. And what an awesome scene. What an awesome scene. I, I, we could start a little bit lower down, but I want to start with the first of the chapters because it's so it, the lead-up is so awesome. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had angelic creatures. Uh, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. You know, he finds himself in the presence of God, you know, and he says, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
And who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah said, I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, Isaiah. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, this is Isaiah answering back, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. That's the land that God promised to give the nation. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah is called by the Lord to be his prophet, his spokesman, his point man for speaking God's truth to the king and to the people, to call the nation to repentance. And you read Isaiah, it's what it is. He calls them from their idolatry. He challenges their idolatry. He challenges their sinfulness. He says, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, come back, turn away from your sin, turn back to God. And he, he calls the nation, and this is the role of all the prophets, but uh, he, he calls the nation to repentance, to forestall the coming judgment if they fail to repent. And a lot of Isaiah's message, and the rest of the prophets too, judgment is coming if you don't repent. Turn back to the Lord. Judgment is coming if you don't. And that's how, that's how it works with all the prophets. You, you could really outline the prophets that way. There's a case brought against the nation. It's either Israel or Judah or the other nations around. There's a, God has a case against them. He warns them of judgment to come. He invites them to repent. And then always, there's always a, another note in there where God says, but even though I discipline you, even though judgment may come, uh, my promises are still good. I will bless your, I will bless the land. I will bless your people. You know, restoration is coming. My promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are not null and void. Ultimate deliverance. And that's the context in which you get these great messianic prophecies like Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 35, 61. You know, it's in those things where we get these kind of uh, messianic prophecies at that promise at the end. So Isaiah's first job, if you will, is not to prophesy about end times events um, still future to us, like the return of Christ, or even to prophesy about the coming Messiah, which he does in places. But his first job 
is is to profit is to speak to his own generation challenging them to repentance and warning them of judgment to come if they don't but in Isaiah's case as we read here from the get go the Lord tells Isaiah they're not going to listen to you they are not going to respond to your message I want you to warn them, lay it out before them, lay out the case against them, tell them what I'm telling you about the judgment that's going to come if you don't repent, but I'm telling you right now, Isaiah, they will not repent. They will not listen. Go and tell this people Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep seeing, but do not perceive. He's Isaiah, you go make the heart of this people dull so that they won't, they won't respond. They won't repent. They said, so and Isaiah has a long ministry, long ministry. But they say, oh, okay, there, here he comes, Isaiah again. Repent, repent. Okay, we're idolatrous. All right, we're doing this, we're doing that. We're not doing this, we're not doing that. We're, our, our, our worship is empty. We sing the right words, we say the right things, but our heart's not in. Okay, all right. He always says, he's always going on like that. He's always saying stuff like that. And judgment is going to come, but it never does. So Isaiah, you've got, so Isaiah's call, Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, I, who shall we send? Isaiah says, send me. All right, Isaiah, you've got the job. But the people aren't going to listen. They're not going to listen. They're not going to repent. They're not going to turn back from their sin, not going to turn to God, not going to humble themselves before God. Even at the end of your ministry, they're still going to be going through the motions of religious ritual, not connected to the heart, even under the threat of chastisement, judgment, serious judgment, not gonna, there's not going to be any speaking tours, Isaiah. There's not going to be any uh, sold-out auditoria. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's not going to be, there's not going to be any book deals. There's not, there's not going to be Isaiah for teens. No Isaiah, the women's journal. You know, none of that. None of that. He did. He he, he actually he did write a couple of books. But besides the one, besides uh, this one, besides the one that bears his name in the Old Testament, Isaiah did write a couple of books. Did you know that? Here's Second uh, Chronicles 26. Flash up that uh, if you have it. He wrote a biography of King Uzziah, or, or you know, a record of his reign. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. Well, there you go. He wrote another one. Same thing with King Hezekiah. This is look at this verse, Second Chronicles 32:32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah uh, and Israel. Well, you'd think that's pretty good life accomplishment too, right? That's a you know writing a couple of books. That's a big thing. I mean, even even still, 
Even still, people like it. Wow, that's a something. Turn, it turned George McFly's life around, didn't it? You know, that's that obscure cultural reference, 1985, you know, Back to the Future. To change everything with Biff, you know, that bully Biff. You know, he wrote a book. He wrote a book. But, you know, I have an idea that those books that he wrote that, that are referred to, they're, they're not really, well, they're, not, they're obviously not as important to the Lord because they don't exist. They're lost. They're lost. We don't have these books. The Lord didn't seem didn't see fit to preserve them. So Isaiah asks as he receives to, which is you know it's kind of inkling where we're going. You know the things we think important are not, maybe not be. So I, Isaiah asks as he receives this call to ministry, and I'll, I'll pick it up here and get, we'll move on, but he says, how long, O Lord? You see that? He said, how long? He said, how long is this miserable ministry of mine going to go on? Right? Here's the answer. Until judgment comes. Till the houses are empty. Till the land is laid waste till many people are removed far away. Isaiah received his uh, call to prophetic ministry in the year of King Uzziah's death. That's what it says, right? Isaiah 6, 1. Uh, so 740 B.C. He prophesied, uh, Isaiah did, in the reigns of three more kings of Judah. Jotham, 28 years. Ahaz, 20 years. Hezekiah, 15 years. Hezekiah reigned more than that, but it, Isaiah seems to have, you know, like have taken a retirement or something, you know, so 15 years in. But, so Isaiah is on the main stage of, of, of uh, Judah's um, national life for more than 60 years. I mean, he's... It wasn't that he served in obscurity, far from it. In, in fact, when you read about, you know, when you read this period of Israel's history, it's like Isaiah's the mainstay. The kings come and go. The kings come and go, but Isaiah is, is there. Uh, he, he was even accorded uh, quite a bit of honor as kind of a senior figurehead of, of the nation. Uh, when King Hezekiah, at a time of national crisis, he sends a delegation to Isaiah to ask for his counsel and ask for his prayers. And he sends his top officers. He sends his top people, you know, the senior priests. The, you know, the, and it seems like, well, you know, you, Isaiah's important. Second Kings 19. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, uh, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos which sounds to me like they regarded him with some respect and some honor. Uh, and so it wasn't that I was, Isaiah was a nobody, just a nobody that nobody knew about. Uh, he, was, he was respected as a prophet, but listen, just not to the point where they would actually repent. Just not to the point where they would actually listen to what he was saying and do that. 
just not to the point where they really would be warned about the uh, impending judgment to come and humble themselves before God. They just wouldn't take it that far. And so they never did. They never did respond to his appeals to repent. And in that sense, he was a, fail- he was a failure in that sense. It, it didn't, they, they never responded. And judgment did come. And judgment came in the person of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, you know, Daniel and, the, you know, Daniel taken captive, you know, all the people taken captive, the 70-year captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Solomon's temple. It came. So, like I said, Isaiah appears to have retired from active involvement in the public life of the nation 15 years into Hezekiah's reign. But, but obviously, he would have been well up in years, right? 60 years, he's active. And if, how old is he when he starts? You know, he's, he's, he's old. But several years after his withdrawal from public life, Hezekiah was succeeded by the wicked Manasseh. And Manasseh's idolatry was extreme, to say the least. Second Kings tells us that Manasseh sacrificed his own son by burning to a pagan god. Second Kings also tells us that Manasseh set up a pagan god in the temple. In the temple. In Solomon's temple. Here's another verse, 2 Kings 21, 16, just the beginning of it. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. And there is a credible tradition. In other words, it's not in the Bible, but there's a credible tradition that, that the old man Isaiah was caught up in that right there. Or that, I should point to you, one you can see. There's a credible tradition that Isaiah got caught up in that, in that bloodletting, and that he was martyred by being, and here's the only, this is the only phrase we have, by being sawn in two, or sawn to pieces, or something like that, but sawn. And so it's some, you know what, some sort of ghastly, ghastly punishment uh, designed to make an impression on anyone who would criticize the king's idolatries, right? So how's that for one last kick in the teeth? (laughs) Pulled out of retirement for that. That that tradition of Isaiah's martyrdom, I I, I didn't ask David to put the scripture up, I'll just read it to you. It may be alluded to in Hebrews chapter 11. Like I say, that's a tradition that he was sawn into. And it's it's not in the scripture. But here's at Hebrews chapter 11, Hall of Fame of Faith. Hall of Fame of Faith. 
What more toward the end of the chapter? What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. I think that's probably Daniel. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. So that's, could that be Isaiah? You know, that's the question. It very well could be. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. How You look at Isaiah's tremendous life contributions you know his life accomplishments but how different is his life experience right so let's you know identify some points of application what we can learn from Isaiah's example and and you'll recognize some of what I say here is excuse me uh, last week repackaged said differently maybe but just a couple of things. Here's one. As servants of the same God that Isaiah served throughout his life, live with at least one foot in eternity. You have to. You have to. How could Isaiah have lived the life that he lived faithful to the Lord to the bitter end and if we're to believe that you know that he was martyred which he may well have been uh, under Manasseh sawn in two it was a bitter end how could he how could he live that life without believing that God would someday set things right that he, that God is a rewarder uh, who repays generously, lavishly. Hebrews chapter 11, the beginning of that chapter, Hall of Fame of Faith, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Let me put it this way with Isaiah. Can you imagine the potential for bitterness in him? I mean, just as a man living a life given his calling and the life that he lived? Can you imagine the potential for frustration, for weariness, of faithfully giving this message of 
you know, call to repentance and warning of judgment to come. And yeah, they honor you as a prophet. And they, you know, they send their best delegation when they go. They bow and, and everything, but they don't do, but they don't respond. They never do take it to heart. Can you imagine potential for resentment in him? Resentment. Uh, and ultimately against God himself. How... how how frustrating would his life have been if he was looking to this life to provide his reward? Well, maybe in my retirement they'll repent and they'll really see me. They'll really give credence to my prophetic ministry. No, they drag him out. And murder him. You know, one of these days are one of these days are going to come around and hear me. And you know, here, no, no, they're not, Isaiah. They're not. They're not. And, and while I won't venture a guess about how much your disappointments are mine, or our frustrations, or the injustices that we may have suffered, our disappointments, I'm not going to try to compare them to Isaiah. But we sure are susceptible to a bitterness against life and against God if we don't have at least one foot in eternity to come. Even Jesus found strength to endure the cross, despising the shame. What does Hebrews say? For the joy set before him. Here's where we have to... Here's where we have to have at least one foot. Because, because life, what did Jesus say? You'll have trouble. You'll have trouble. The promise that nobody ever claims. Right? You promise trouble, where's mine? Nobody, you don't have to claim it. It'll find you. And it, how do we get through that? Well, here's where we here's how we get through. Then I saw a new heaven. Here's where we have one foot all the time. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Live with one foot right there. <laughs> you have to. You have to. Second, this is kind of almost the same point. But believe that your God, if you have the same God as Isaiah, believe that your God is a redeeming God because he is. Now, when we speak of God as a redeemer,
part of what we're saying, and I'm saying this because redemption, I've taught many times redemption is an economic term. You redeem coupons, it's buying back. It's kind of an economic term. But, it, but it's more than that. Part of what we're saying when we say God is a redeemer is that he takes what has been completely ruined. He, this is what he does because he's a redeemer. He takes that which has been completely ruined and makes it into something good and beautiful and right. He, he takes that which has been irreparably broken and, and makes it work, complete, work completely well, like it's supposed to. He, he, takes, he takes things that have been impossibly defiled, irrevocably defiled, and he, he touches them and he makes them good and whole and pure and holy and righteous. You know, you or I touch the leper, we become unclean. Jesus touches the leper, the leper becomes clean. And we, we like our heroes to show up just in the nick of time before it's too late, right? Uh, we like to hear the Calvary's bugle call right just before all is lost. But our God loves to display His glory by redeeming the impossible situation. Uh, after it's apparently already too late. He has a way of showing up when it's too late. But it's not too late for him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Anybody know chapter and anybody know book and chapter? John eleven. If my if you if you Lord, if you just come, my brother wouldn't have died. Or a road to Emmaus. We brought this up, what, last week? Or We had hoped he had be, would be the one to redeem Israel. But it's too late now. He's dead. It's not too late. Not for our Redeemer God. Our God, the Redeeming God, he promises, here's Joel. Here, uh, yeah, is it Joel? Yeah, Joel 2. He will give back the years the locust has eaten. He will redeem the years that the locust has eaten. He will restore the years that are lost. The years that you might be tempted to look back on and say, they're lost, they're gone, they're wasted. It's been nothing but disappointment. Nothing but hardship. Nothing but loss. But our Redeemer God... He says, Joel 2, I will redeem, I will restore, I will repay the years the locust has eaten. I'm telling you, I'm looking, you know, we're a small church and we know each other. We know each other, right? And I can look at you, and I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I can, uh, I can put... I can see some years the locust has eaten in your life. I really can. And part of me wants here to say your name. I won't. But your name 
he will redeem the years the locust has eaten. He will redeem. He will repay the years. You know, how do you do that? They're lost. They're gone. They're gone. How do you get back years? I don't know. <laughs> but the Lord will restore the years that the locust has eaten. He's a restoring God. So he's a, he's a redeeming God. Believe. So how do you do it? You know, Isaiah. How do you do this? You believe that he's, that our God is a redeeming God because he is. And lastly, well, let me say this before I move on to lastly. The life that you place into the whole Lord's hands, the life you give to the Lord, and that's part of it. It doesn't do this automatically. You do have to. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. You, have to, you do have to give it to the Lord. You have to give yourself to the Lord. But there is, there, you just can't anticipate what the Lord will do with you and with the life that you give in his hand. Even if you look back on it and you see nothing but hardship and disappointment and betrayal and just things that didn't work out like you thought it would work out. You just don't know what the Lord's going to do with that. Look what he did with Isaiah. Look at what his, look how the Lord used Isaiah's life. And this is kind of what I was trying to get at last week, and I kind of bungled the point, I think. I asked about first-generation Christians. You can kind of see, I think I can see uh, this, this impact of our lives uh, that going beyond the span of our lives in, in families, and I see it here. And I see there's some families that are that are enjoying the blessing of God because of what grandma and great-grandpa, how they lived and in, in terms of their faith in the Lord. And I see some first-generation families that are changing the trajectory of their families in huge ways because of just of simple uh, faithfulness, simple belief, simple faith, and simple obedience. And here's the last point. Value, and this is what you have to do. Isaiah had to do it. And you have to do it too, and I have to do it too. Value simple faith and obedience over every worldly measure of success or effectiveness or meaning that there is. You have to. How did Isaiah get to the tremendous achievements of his, of his life? And these great things. Foundation for the New Testament. Foundation for Matthew. Shaping Messiah's self-conception. You know, this tremendous apologetic, you know, this tremendous contribution. How did he get there? Well, he didn't get there by... Uh, he, he didn't plan it. It wasn't, it wasn't his strategy to do that stuff. He couldn't have even known about the New Testament. He couldn't, I can't feature that he would have imagined that he would personally influence Messiah's thinking about himself or that he'd be in, in, instrumental in this great future wave of Jewish, you know, of, of Jewish evangelism. He, he didn't get there by finding out what God wanted to do with him so he could go do it. He got there by simple faith and obedience. He believed God and God told him to speak. He spoke. 
God told him to write. He wrote. God told him to tell them this. He told them. Simple faith and obedience. And you don't know what God will do with that. But you know he's a redeemer. And you know he's not bound by the years of your life. You know, in the in hindsight, you know you're you're going to be tempted to look at your life. You know, you're going to have hardships, you're going to have disappointments, you're going to have frustrations, and you're going to be tempted to look at it and be disappointed. But but in hindsight, you're going to look in hindsight from the perspective of eternity. You're going to look back on your life and see in ways that you probably cannot see right now that your life is a story of God's grace, God's mercy, God's kindness, God's power, uh, God's redemption, His ability to take that which is nothing and make it something huge and great and good, His ability to take something defiled and make it clean and holy and pure, His ability to take you know, something that is broken and make it right. Your Isaiah's life, while he lived it, is like ours. It's hidden with Christ in God. And it has not yet been revealed. It's been revealed in Isaiah's case, I think, but it hasn't been revealed in yours or mine what God has done and God will do with and through you to His glory and to His praise forevermore.